Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. My conversation today is with Gretchen Rubin, a New York Times bestselling author who has sold over three and a half million copies of her books. Some of those titles, which include Outer Order, Inner Calm, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, Happier at Home, and the book that we discuss in depth in today's conversation, The Four Tendencies. In my 10 years of research study in implementation with productivity, focus, and human behavior and psychology, the four tendencies is quite possibly the most impactful and actionable concept that I've ever come across. As we talked about in this conversation, understanding and using the four tendencies to better understand yourself as well as everybody around you is kind of like becoming Neo and being able to see through the endless random numbers to read the matrix of human relationships and behavior. Now, just be warned, in this episode, I'm giving you the choice between the red pill or the blue pill, because once you understand the four tendencies, there is no going back. You are going to see the world in every single interaction in a completely different way. Now, if you're interested in understanding why you can or cannot take certain actions, why you procrastinate, or why you do or don't get along with your friends, your family, your spouse, your colleagues, learning the four tendencies is literally a game changer. All right, without further ado, my interview with New York Times bestselling author Gretchen Rubin. I'm here today with Gretchen Rubin, who's the author of several best-selling books, which have sold more than 3.5 million copies worldwide. This includes the New York Times bestsellers, Outer Order, Inner Calm, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, Happier at Home. And the real reason that we're here today is to discuss the four tendencies, which is the indispensable personality profiles that reveal how to make your life better and by the way, other people's lives better too. So Gretchen, as I expressed to you offline before we started this conversation, I don't think I've ever been more nervous or excited to have an author on my show in the history of doing almost 200 episodes. So thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I can't wait to dive in. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Yeah, so I'm, I'm super excited. And the reason is because I was introduced to the Four Tendencies Framework in your work about two years ago when I went to an event. And I had not heard of your work beforehand, which I almost, it's funny, I feel guilty for that and I shouldn't, but I'm like, oh, how did I not know about this before? But as soon as I started listening to you talk about these four tendencies, there were so many little conflicts either in my personal life and my conflicts with my kids, with my wife, or conflicts with myself or in my job that it was like, 
oh my God, I'm starting to understand myself better over the last 60 minutes of this presentation than I have in the previous 38 years of my life. I have to learn more. So of course, I dove into the entire book. And then as I started to really consume it and started to share it with fellow colleagues and share it with people in my coaching program, they were expressing the same level of clarity. And the way that I describe the four tendencies, I'm sure it's going to be you know different than the way that you describe it. But being in the, the film industry, I tell people that you're going to feel like Neo in the Matrix. Ah. You can read it for the first time and understand human relationships. It's so cool once you actually start to be able to read the Matrix as it comes to these tendencies. Oh, that's so that's slow. Great to hear. I'm so happy that it's uh, struck such a chord with you and was so clarifying. That's fantastic. Yeah, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't either talk about it or recommend it to somebody. Excellent. Well, thank you. Gold yeah, absolutely. You. That's um, so I, of course, want to jump right into the tendencies. But at the same time, I think it's important for people to understand the origin of it and not just the origin of the tendencies, but understand more about you because you have a very circuitous path to get to the place of being a best-selling author. So I want to understand just a little bit more about you and your journey and how you came to this point of saying, huh, there's this thing and I need to learn more about it. You're right. I did have a circuitous path. I started my career in law and went to law school and I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court when I realized I actually wanted to be a writer. I had the idea for um, what became my first book while I was clerking and became very preoccupied with learning and taking notes. And, and that's something that's happened to me throughout my life. I will get very interested in a subject and, and really want to go deep, deep, deep into it. Um, but this was the first time where it was sort of all consuming and it was, it, and it became the book Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide, which is like the opposite of the happiness project. And that was my first book. And so I just started working on that and, and, and read it, researching it and writing and taking notes. And finally I thought, well, this is the kind of thing a person would do if they were going to write a book. And then I thought, well, you know, I can write a book. And um, so I literally went to the bookstore and got a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal and followed the direction. So that's how I got into writing. And, you know, all my books really are about human nature in one way or another. And my book, The Happiness Project, which was the book where I think a lot of people became aware of me as a writer because my other books... That was actually my fourth book. So I was a good example of somebody who was perceived to be an overnight success, even though I had been working very hard for 10 years. The Happiness Project got me really, really focused on just sort of the larger issue of happiness. And, um, and really that has been, that's, that's a very vast subject. And, and I've been sort of looking at different aspects of happiness ever since as, a, as an aspect of human nature. So like I wrote a book better than before that was all about habits, because as you know, Habits have a very important role to play in making our lives happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. So it was like, how do we make and break habits? Like, I need to figure that out. And it was when I was writing that book that I started to know, notice patterns of behavior that I couldn't really explain, that I felt like no one was really grappling with, uh, kind of different perspectives and different challenges that to me seem to fall into these very distinct patterns. And after immense intellectual toil, it really was the hardest intellectual thing of my life was I identified these four tendencies and sort of understood how the role that the four tendencies play in human nature, um, a polder, questioner, obliger, rebel, what, what your tendency has uh, an enormous influence on kind of how you see the world and how you operate most effectively. So um, I, I was studying human nature. That got me into habits. That got me to the, that helped me recognize the four tendencies. Well, I want to give a, a warning and a disclaimer to everybody listening before we go forwards that, like I mentioned, you will become Neo in the Matrix. And this is yeah. your last chance to take the right yeah. of the pill. Because yes. once you understand what an obliger, an upholder, a questioner, and a rebel are, you are never going to see yourself or other people the same way again ever. And I do not say that lightly because yes. I see it happen with everybody, including myself, where it just becomes this vision that you have. And what I want to go into first is this idea of, oh, wait a second, all people don't belong in buckets. This isn't Myers-Briggs. I hate being typecast into yeah. a certain thing. So talk yeah. to me about why these are the tendencies and not the four types. Well, you know, it's interesting because some people, as you say, really resist the idea of categories and people will say, well, if you define me, you can find me. But in my observation, it's very handy to have shorthand, to have a vocabulary to describe how people see things differently. Because um, especially when differences kind of fall into patterns where if I use one term, I can, I can explain a lot. One of the things that's different about this framework is that 
you know, something like Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or a lot of other kinds of uh, personality types try to really give a whole picture of a person. They really try to explain kind of a lot about you. This is just one thing and we'll get into it, but it's just one aspect of your nature. It's very, very significant. It has a lot of consequences, but it's one very narrow thing. So we don't, knowing your tendency, if you're in a folder, question, oblige, rebel, doesn't tell you, there's a lot of things it doesn't tell you about somebody. And sometimes people will be like, well, all rebels are creative and narcissistic and rebellious. But I'm like, no, 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 no. Like we only know one thing. We know an important thing, but we only know one thing. Um, and so I think that it's not, it's, it's very um, specific. And so I think that's, that's why it's a tendency. And also if you, as we get into it, the tendencies, they run into each other. So you can, you can, sort of be, there's a continuum. So it's not like each four is completely separate. They're all part of a continuum of human nature. And it's very, actually, it turns out it's very easy to pinpoint pretty precisely where you fall on that continuum. And that tells you a lot about yourself and also how you might relate to other people either more effectively or maybe with more conflict or frustration. Yeah, and I think in the context of this interview, there are so many different areas where we can see the strengths and weaknesses of each, how they apply to your lives. But I'm very aware that we only have an hour to get through all of this. And I think that for <laughs> me, it's first of all, the you know first and foremost for anybody, it's understanding your own tendency and yeah. how you can use that to maybe you know stick with better habits or make better decisions or whatever it is. But I think also the second area that I want to go into a little bit later in the call would be understanding how it makes me a better creative collaborator. Yeah. Because that's one of the areas where I have just, it's like a, this giant exponential learning curve where I went from being a pretty good collaborator to being amazing at collaboration because I knew how to meet everybody's tendencies in the middle, even if their tendencies weren't the same as me. So I think yeah. first it's a matter of, understanding, well, what are the four tendencies? How does this help me? But then how does it help me collaborate? Because we could go down many rabbit holes for hours about personal relationships and raising your kids. And, you know, we may tangentially go there. But I think that in general, the takeaway is how does this help me understand habit formation and better behaviors? Because I've, I've talked to James Clear about habit formation. I've talked to Cal Newport about the process of deep work. I've talked to David Allen about how to get things done. I've talked to Jay Papazan about how to find your one thing. But I feel like the glue that holds all of it together is understanding how do I actually consistently follow through? Yes. I discovered the four tendencies. I was like, aha, there's the super glue for all of it. I must find Gretchen. Good. Right? Yes. So yes. let's just start with the basics. What okay. are the four tendencies? First of all, if, if some people like to take a quiz that will like spit out an answer. And so if you want to take a quiz, you can take this quick free quiz. It's quiz.gretchenrubin.com. More than 2 million people have taken this quiz. And it will give you an answer and it'll give you like a little report uh, kind of explaining. So you can take the quiz. That said, a lot of people don't need to take the quiz. I will just describe it briefly and we'll talk about it and people will have a very clear sense of what who they are and probably who a lot of people in their lives are. Not to mention Game of Thrones characters, which I can go deep into the Game of Thrones analysis if, if, if we have time for that. Because or the houses of Hogwarts too, if we want to go there, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I will say this. Sometimes people try to map the houses of Hogwarts onto the four tendencies, but you cannot do that. And I have three words for you. That is Hermione, Fred, George. They're <laughs> not the same tendency, but they're definitely Gryffindor. So the Hogwarts does not map, but we can do Game of Thrones. Oh, we can do Parks and Rec. We can, there, there's, we can do real people. It's funny. I'm watching Parks and Rec right now. And that's all I'm thinking about is what is each person's tendency? And it's yes. pretty obvious. So yeah, it's, well, it's yeah, funny. It's I'm doing obvious. that right now. The yes. thing is, it's pretty obvious once you do it. So um, so here they are. So as we said, it's a polder question or blighter rebel. And what this is looking at is how you respond to expectations, which sounds really boring, but ends up being very, very significant. So we all face two kinds of expectations. Outer expectations that come to us from others, like a work deadline or a request from a friend. And then we have inner expectations, what we expect from ourselves. I want to keep a New Year's resolution. I want to uh, get back into meditation. And so depending on how the combination in which you uh, meet or resist outer and inner expectations, that's what makes you your tendency. So first are upholders. And upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they're making everything an inner expectation. 
If it meets their inner standard and seems justified, they'll do it no problem. If it fails their standard, they will push back. They typically resist anything arbitrary, ineffective, unjustified. They always need to know why. And so the motto of questioners is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my first insight into this when a friend said to me, I don't understand it. I know I would be happier if I exercised. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she had no trouble going. And But when she's trying to go running on her own, it's a struggle. And what we find for obligers is that to meet an inner expectation, like getting back into meditation, obligers must have outer accountability. That is the way they meet inner expectations by plugging in forms of outer accountability. That is just crucial. And so the motto of obliger is, you can count on me and I'm counting on you to count on me. And then finally, the rebels. Rebels resist all expectations outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't like to tell themselves what to do. Like They don't want to sign up for a 10 a.m. spin class on Saturday because they're like, I just want to wake up on Saturday and see what I feel like doing. I don't, I, and the, the fact that somebody's expecting me to show up is just going to annoy me. Um, so the motto of the rebel is, you can't make me and neither can I. So those are the four. And of the four, obliger is the biggest tendency for both men and women. That is the biggest one. You either are an obliger or you have many obligers in your life. And the smallest tendency, that's a small tendency. And my tendency, the upholder tendency, just slightly larger. Those are the two smaller tendencies. Well, one of the things that I find so interesting and somewhat humorous was your discovery when you were doing this, like, wait, you mean... I'm the eccentric one. Yes. I'm the one that, that that's, I'm not the majority. What are you talking about? Right. So talk to me a little bit more about your discovery of being an upholder. Well, I mean, that's, ex- you're exactly right. I mean, because I remember go- like when I finally came up with this and I mean, like the sweat was pouring down my face. It was so hard. And I went, I go into my husband and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know what I realized? I'm part of this like extreme fringe personality type. And he's like, you think? Like he was that surprised. And the fact is when you talk to upholders, it's like, I say to them, don't you get the sense that other people are not like you? Like, and if you get a bunch of upholders together, they all start muttering like, why can't other people just get their stuff done? Like, what is the problem? And it's interesting for me because a lot of times when you talk to people who are kind of like experts or, or giving advice, a lot of times they're upholders. I'm like, yeah, anything works for you because upholders are just really good at execution. They, they're great at things like to-do lists and schedules and setting priorities and following through. That's what they're really good at. There's negatives to being upholders. Definitely there's limitations and weaknesses, but one thing they're good at doing is, is executing. When I was writing the happiness project, people would say to me, well, how did you get yourself to do all those things? How did you get yourself to follow all those resolutions? And I would say, well, I thought they would make me happier. So I tried them. And then if they did make me happier, I just kept doing them. And people would look so puzzled and they would say, but how did you get yourself to do them? And I was like, I don't understand your question. Like what, why, 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 I don't, why? And now, and then I understood, oh, okay. That's because most people are not upholders. And so a lot of things became clear to me. Many, 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 many things became clear to me when I understood many people are not like me. You know, I'm coming from a very particular place. All of us, each of us is coming from a particular place. And many people in the world do not see things the way that we do. Which so much, that's got to be impossible. How can everybody else on the planet not have the exact same lens and filters as I do? Like what the hell, Right? right? I mean, it's like, it's so hard to remember people can see things, they can have different values, they can have different perspectives. I mean, it's funny how hard that is to keep in mind. Even though we intellectually know it's true, it's just very hard not to just assume like, well, of course the situation is what the situation is. It's like, no, it's not. It's what we think it is. Well, and that's what I love about this so much is it's not like I had the discovery, oh wait, people are different than me. It was, oh, now I understand how. I get yes. it. I see what they're seeing, yeah. but I also understand how they're seeing me. And yes. that was really the biggest thing. But the, before kind of diving deeper into it, I think one of my favorite things that you have in the book is basically to understand these four tendencies is asking, how do you get each one to change a light bulb? Oh, right. Yes. Um, so an upholder will change and a questioner needs to know why to change it. 
uh, what, you know, I'm sorry. I can't really remember that. Oh, so, so yeah. Right. So how do you get yeah. and, you know, whatever tendency to change a light bulb and the upholder is, well, he's already changed it. The questioner, why would I need to change that light bulb anyways? The obliger, well, duh, you ask them to change it. And the rebel will say, do it yourself. Yeah. Right. As soon as I read that, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this, this all makes more sense. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I'm sure that you can speak to this a lot more than I can, because you've talked to millions of people and spoken about this and, you know, done book tours. But I find that as soon as you talk about these tendencies, and I, in probably 30 coaching calls, I said, let me walk you through this. And just exactly like you said, it's about inner expectations versus outer expectations. Here are the four types. And I always see the same thing, which is, oh, I think I'm this one. Oh, but wait, no, I'm kind of that one. But I'm kind of that one too. Oh, God, I don't know. Like one of them seems to be more dominant, but am I only one? Am I another? Like, how do I figure it out? So what are some, you know, obviously you have the quiz and I want people to, to go to the quiz and I'll provide a link to it. But just off the top of your head, if somebody's listening to this, they're in the car, they don't want to jump right. on their phone, don't want to go on the quiz. How can we help them get a little bit closer in a couple minutes? Okay. Well, often an obliger will say, I don't know if I'm an obliger and a pulter, but uh, I'm really good at meeting outer expectations, but I can't meet inner expectations. I'm like, well, that is the definition of an, of an, of, a, of an obliger. The question is, obligers and upholders are the same and that they both readily meet outer expectations. So the question is, can you readily meet inner expectations? Meaning, if you make a new, how do you feel about New Year's resolutions? So ask yourself right now in your mind, say, how do I feel about New Year's resolutions? Upholders will typically say, I like New Year's resolutions. I like making resolutions. I feel good about resolutions. Questioners will say, I kind of object to New Year's resolutions because if there's something that's important to me, I'll just go ahead and do it. I'm not going to wait for January 1st because that's an arbitrary date. Obligers will often say they don't like New Year's resolutions. They often feel very discouraged. They've often given up making New Year's resolutions because they failed so often in the past. And rebels will either say they totally reject New Year's resolutions because they never want to chain themselves in that way. And so they, they, they kind of, they're just not interested. Or they really embrace them as sort of a challenge. Like, you know what? My cousin said he didn't think I could run a marathon in 2019. And, you know, watch me. So starting on January 1, I'm training and I'm going to draw, you know, it's like the challenge. It's the proof. You think that I can't go without alcohol for a year? I'll show you. So sometimes they kind of embrace the challenge of it and the I'll show you of a New Year's resolution, but typically they don't like New Year's resolutions because they feel like they're too, like, they, they, they feel like they're too, cha- they're a chain or they're too confining. So that, so, the, so, the, that, so thinking of how you answered that is a tip off. That's a good question. People who feel very, very strongly that they're they're what they're part of each, that is a sign that you are a questioner because questioners will do whatever makes sense. So like I was talking to a high school student who said, look, I'm a mix because look, I, if I have an assignment from a teacher I respect, I do it, no problem. So I'm in a folder. But if I have a t- an assignment from a teacher that I don't respect, I just refuse to do it. So then I'm a rebel. And I'm like, no, you're 100% questioner because a questioner's question is, why should I listen to you? If I respect you, I'll do it. If I don't respect you, I won't. It's like, why would I? And questioners think everybody in the world thinks that or should think that way. Everybody should be thinking, well, why should I do this? But I'm like, but they don't. And that's what makes you a questioner. So in a, it's funny, upholders, obligers, and rebels see more easily how they are different from other people. They feel it. Rebels feel what it is to be a rebel. Upholders feel what it is to be an upholder. Obligers are like, why is it that I can't have self-care? Questioners just are like, why doesn't everybody just do what makes sense? But the fact is that that's just not how other tendencies approach things. Um, and so um, I really do think that most people will fall squarely within one tendency. Now, each tendency sort of, you can have a flavor of an overlapping tendency. So like as an upholder, I'm like an obliger in that we both meet readily meet, meet outer expectations. But as an upholder, I also overlap with questioners because we both readily meet inner expectations. And so some upholders are more on the obliger side and some upholders are more on the questioner side. So there is a continuum and, and they are you can see differences of, of people within a tendency, but they still are part of that core tendency. And as I said earlier, like we could line up 50 questioners and depending on how ambitious they were, how analytical they were, how creative they were, how introverted or extroverted they were, how adventurous they were, what their values were, they would all look very, very different from each other. But if you said to them, hey, will you do X for me? They would all answer at the same time, why should I? Because that is what it is to be a questioner. That they would all share their response to expectations. But even even if many aspects of their nature were very different. 
My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. As a questioner myself, yeah. I can attest to the fact that that can create a lot of friction in relationships yeah. because one of the strengths of being a questioner is that you love to gain knowledge and analyze things and go deep. And at the same time, all people hear from you is the word no, as opposed to, no, no, I, I'm, I'm fine doing it, but I just want to understand more about the process. And I think this was before I had learned about the four tendencies, maybe it was after, um, but I have a, a former supervisor of mine that's also a very good personal friend, which can be both good and bad because it means we're a lot more honest with each other when we work together. Yeah. And she said to me once, she's like, you know what? You are amazing to work with until I ask you to do something. And then yeah. you drive me crazy. Yes. She knows I'm always going to follow through, but I always fight back wanting to understand, well, is this the best time to do it? What if we did it yeah. this way instead? And they're like, yeah. could you just do it? Yes. Right? And I, she's an obliger on steroids. She goes out of her way to help everybody else and put their needs first and has a very difficult time meeting her own inner expectations. So one of the connections that we have is she's always coming to me with issues with her self-care and with health. Like, why is it that I keep, you know, stopping exercising? I'm like, you know, you need to, to find a workout group or a buddy. And once she does that, she starts to get into it. Um, but she really kind of put the, the, the questioner in a bumper sticker form for me. And one of the things that I made a joke about on the show before, and I tell my clients a lot, is that one of the discoveries that I made, and this is going to kind of help us transition into understanding how to use this. It's one thing to just see it and be like, oh, that's really cool. I'm this, I'm X, Y, or Z. But the power is understanding how to use it. And for me, it was in being able to take the path to a more fulfilling career. I now understand very well about myself that I'm amazing at collaborating with people. I am horrible at working for people. Mm -hmm. So when I go into an interview, it's not just about me trying to talk about here are my character traits, here's why I'm a good fit. I interview them to understand what are your expectations of me and my time. And one thing that I found at first when you did the test and that kind of asking about the New Year's resolutions when I was in that, uh, that live speech, and you said, how do you respond to New Year's resolutions? And immediately in my head, I went, well, it just seems so arbitrary. And then two seconds later, you're like, you're probably thinking the word arbitrary. And I'm like, whoa, how did you do that? What a magic <laughs> trick, right? So I always thought to myself, oh, I'm clearly a questioner on steroids. I was saying that for a long time. But the further I dug into this and the further I worked with people, I realized... I'm actually very much a combination of a questioner and a rebel. So what I would actually like to do, because I think this is going to be really helpful for my audience specifically, because I think a lot of people that work in my field, just statistically, first of all, most of them are going to be obligers because that's just statistically across the board. But I think with my work, a lot of the best people are questioners 
because we're a good fit for this job because we want to question, is there a better way to tell the story? Could we find an even better music cue? Could we find a different transition as opposed to you got a boss, whatever you want. Like I don't work well with people where they want me to be an operator. Just press right. the buttons and cut the scene that I want. That doesn't work for me. But if it's all about whose idea in the room is the best idea, not you're the showrunner and I'm the editor, therefore I defer to you, that's helped me find the right people and be better at my job. Yeah. Um, but it's really about understanding how can I harness the power of this? So what I want to do, because I think a lot of people might have similar tendencies to me, I want to do just kind of a, a bit of a tangent, maybe for like five minutes. And I want you on the fly to see if you can help me understand if I'm more dominantly questioner, rebel, or if I'm just completely off track, because I think a lot of people are going to identify with this. So my belief is I'm very uh, strongly questioner with a tendency to be rebel, but I'm starting to think it's more like 55-45. Well, I mean, I will say like someone like Steve Jobs, that's pretty much what he was. Mm -hmm. he, was he was a questioner who le leaned very strongly to rebel. Um, so when, if you are, like, this is what I would predict seeing if you're a questioner who leans to rebel. So a questioner, the difference, so you're exactly right. Questioners and rebels overlap. There's a deep affinity between questioners and rebels because they both resist outer expectations. The difference in why I think you were right to analyze yourself as a questioner is that the fundamental question, the fundamental mindset of the questioner is, why should I? Why should I? If you can tell me why, I will do it. If you can show me why, if you can convince me why, if you can, if I, if I can see it, then I will execute. Why? A rebel is, you can't make me. A rebel is like pushing back and saying, you can't make me. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. And so like, let's say you have two little kids who won't do their homework and they're like, they're not doing their book report. The, the questioner is thinking, this is a dumb assignment. This is a big waste of my time. You know, I read the book. Why am I going to write out this book? Like, like, no, I'm not going to do that. It's like, it's, what a waste of time. You're an idiot. That's what the questioner child is thinking. The rebel child is thinking, you're not the boss of me. You're my teacher, but you can't make me do it. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. But when you have a questioner who's tipping to rebel, who's leaning towards that rebel side, that's when you start seeing more pushing back towards things that could be conceived of as arbitrary. But like questioners who tip to a polder who's like my husband, it's easier for them to accept things like speed limits, things like five garments to a dressing room. Questioners who tip to rebels often really don't like that kind of thing because to them that feels arbitrary. It's like mm -hmm. you're telling me what to do and I don't think it makes sense because I'm a good driver and you're a bad driver. Why are we both driving 70 miles an hour? That doesn't make sense. They very much more need to be convinced and they can they might like really resist everything until they are proved to be right. And that's why questioners who tip to rebels often will want to work for themselves. I know a questioner who works for herself because she said, I just never trust other people's judgment. I don't think they do their research. I don't think they think things through. I don't feel comfortable like any, like I, in the end, I, it's like, it's like, it's me and very few people who I think really like know their business. And so I, I can't, I can't do what they say. I gotta, I've got to make all the decisions because I have to, because I know that I do it. And I talked to somebody else who, she divorced her first husband, married somebody else, and they're both very serious questioners. And she said, well, to me, it's a huge relief because most people, I feel like I wouldn't even trust them to do something like pick a tent to buy. Because I'm like, I don't know if you did your research. She said, but my husband, I know that he questions the way I do. And if he makes a judgment, then I can trust it. And so he like cuts my work in half because he has the level that I have. But you know, other people, eh, I don't listen to them so much because uh, I don't know that I don't, I don't really, I mean, maybe I don't trust them. Maybe I don't, I don't respect their authority. I, I really have to trust my own judgment first. And it is that quest for like constant betterment. You know, they always are looking for the edge, the hack, the efficiency, the new way, you know, um, I'm not going to change for change's sake. I'm not going to change because corporate tells me to change. But if you can show me that this is a better way, I'm totally on board with that. So dare they say they might create a program called Optimize Yourself because they feel that there's always a better way to do something, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. Hack that. Exactly. Exactly. And then like that kind of hacking, uh, they tend to love, they love to customize. Questioners love to customize. If you say, oh, this is the way you do it. They're like, eh, I'm going to tweak that because I think, I think I know how to make it work better for me. You know? So yeah. So that's very, yeah. very that's me that. every Sunday afternoon when I do meal prep. Oh, this looks like a great recipe, but how can I change it? Yes. Because I have yeah. to be different. I can't just do the recipe that everybody else does. It has to be a little different. It has to be me. 
which kind of leads me to this idea of the strengths or the weaknesses, or even more importantly, the values. And that's actually one of the values of the rebel is authenticity, right? So it was when I started reading about that, I'm like, oh, that's actually a lot more me than I thought. Because I was thinking, well, I'm not a rebel. I did all my homework growing up and I was valedictorian in my high school class and, you know, Phi Beta Kappa University of Michigan. Like, how could I possibly be a rebel? But then I realized it literally gives me a pit in my stomach to do things the way that other people do things. If I haven't customized it and I haven't made it authentic to who I am, I just feel like, what is the point of this if somebody else is already doing it, which can be both a strength, but it can also be a weakness depending on the circumstance. Well, and you've pointed out something very important, which is that sometimes people make an assumption that rebels can't succeed. Um, And the fact is rebels can do anything they want to do. And so some rebels really want to be, they want to make a lot of money. They want to have a lot of power. They want to have a lot of influence. They want to put their creativity out in the world. They many, many, many people who are rebels are highly, highly successful because that's what they want. But they're not doing it because you told them to. They're not doing it because they're supposed to. They're doing it in their own way, in their own time. And so they put their rebel spin on it. And then some rebels don't. And then you can't make them. You know what I mean? And it's like, they're not going to do it just because you tell them to. And so for a rebel, it's interesting. The rebel tendency is the most different from the other three. I think it really, if you're dealing with a rebel, either you're the rebel or you're dealing with a rebel in your life, it really is helpful to understand their perspective because they really do see things and respond things respond to things in a way that can be hard for the other tendencies to understand. And actually the other tendencies will often interfere and make things worse. The more like, you know, an obliger or an upholder might be like, well, you know what? I see that you're not meeting your deadline. So like, let's have a weekly check-in meeting. And like every day I'm going to like call you up and see how it's going. And we're going to have some accountability and some oversight. And I'm going to give you a best practices page and you can follow that. That's going to streamline your procedure. That is the worst part, but uh, terrible ideas if you're dealing with a rebel. Because rebel wants to do their own work in their own way. Like the more you're trying to control them, the more you're going to ignite that spirit of resistance and they're going to delay and they're going to procrastinate and they're going to, they're not going to do it. If you're just like, you know what? You've got the chops to do this. Like uh, it's due in two weeks. You know, the client, we, if we're going to keep this job, we got to keep the client happy. It's due in two weeks. Let me know if you run into any roadblocks. I cannot wait to see what you come up with. You and your team always, I, it's like, I love seeing what you guys can do. Blow me away. And you just walk away and you're like, if you do it all the night before, like, okay, that's fine with me. Well, and I think that what you, what you've alluded to is that once you can recognize your own tendency, or even if you don't recognize your own tendency, the assumption is, well, if you're struggling with something that I've struggled with and overcome, here are the ways that I overcame it and that should work for you. Right. And that's where the conflict comes from. Cause you're thinking, why can't you overcome something? I just did the same way. And that's what I was doing. I kept using logic. Well, the reason that you can't do this is because of this and this and this. So I would use this resource and this strategy and people would come back and say, I don't get it. None of this works for me. And like, why the hell doesn't it work for you? Right. So there's even a little bit of that rigid upholder in me as well. Um, Well, it's a question because questioners feel like if I give you the research, if I show you the data, that will be compelling. That will, that is what is going to inspire your behavior is you understanding why. So I'm going to send you a link to 10 different studies and that is going to convince you. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work for the other tendencies. That's just, it does, it's just not what resonates with them. But, and, then, and then the questioners are baffled because they're like, look at all this. Like, why, why are you all acting in a way that just makes no sense at all? It's like, well, it just, it makes sense if you understand the tendencies. Well, and it's funny because you just described basically the first year of my uh, first podcast platform, which is me standing on a soapbox, sharing the information, saying, what is wrong with you people? Don't you see it all right in front of you? Why are we living this way? Why do we treat ourselves this way in this industry? Look at the results of this. Look at the research. Let's just all change together. Okay. All right, good. Done. And then all of a sudden I got all this pushback. I'm like, whoa where is this coming from? And I realized that it wasn't about, here's all the information, you must have it. I reversed it and I said, I want all of you to talk to me. I want to understand where your challenges are. What is it that you know, is stopping you from getting where you want to in your career? Yeah. Why can't you follow through with your healthy behaviors? Like, Why do you always burn out when you see it coming? And then as I started to bring all this information in, I'm like, oh, wow, there's, there's a lot going on here that goes beyond just not having the research. Yeah. And that's when I started to dive much deeper into human psychology and behavior, which is how I ended up finding your work and realizing, oh, now this makes a lot more sense. But the first step was really just listening. Like, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. As opposed to here's what you need to do and here's how I can prove it. 
because I'm a questioner. That's my tendency, right? That's, that's exactly what I'm going for. But there are weaknesses to that. And there are weaknesses to all four of them that I wanted to just very briefly go through. And for me, that weakness is analysis paralysis. Yeah. Where, like you said, if you're going to you know, go buy something, like go buy a tent online, um, and a perfect example that comes up that shows the difference between me and my wife. My wife is an obliger. She's a teacher. She won LAUSD Teacher of the Year. She's up for LA County Teacher of the Year. She is an obliger and then some. And I remember our microwave broke and she just went out and she bought a microwave and she brought it home. And like, did you look online at any of the models or look at the very, she's like, no, I just went and bought a microwave. And I was just like, yeah. what do you mean? You just bought it. That's like, such a great example. It drove me crazy. That. I'm like, but, yes. and, but then I thought I'm like, oh, but the difference is we have a microwave that works. Had she put that task on my list, it would have taken me a week and we'd probably have the better option, but we needed a microwave now. So that analysis paralysis happens with my health, where like you said, I can meet my own inner expectations. Like right now for the last year and a half, I've been training for American Ninja Warrior, but it's not because I'm on a polder and I just say, I need to exercise, therefore I should exercise. It was, I need to justify, well, should I be doing HIIT training on Monday or HIIT training on, oh, but wait a second, this article said that cardio should be this many times per week, but crap, I need to do, I have to do grip strength. Ah, crap. I'm just going to watch Netflix instead because it's yeah. easier. Yeah, analysis paralysis is a big issue because it's like that desire for information makes it hard to move forward or to make a decision sometimes because you're like, there's just more and more and more information. So that's why if you're if you're a questioner and, and you aren't meeting an inner expectation, the, uh, the advice is always to look and see, have you really decided what's best? Because if you haven't decided what's best, you, you're probably just kind of spinning out because you haven't really got that clarity that you need. Another problem that some questioners have, I'd be curious if you've run it, it sounds like you have run into this, is um, when people say they ask too many questions and they're seen as being sort of either stubborn or being bottlenecks or like, or sometimes if you have a defensive boss or, or you know, a defensive partner or whatever, like they feel like, well, you're, you're not, you don't trust my judgment. You're undermining my authority because you keep asking me why. Where the questioner's like, I just want to know why you picked the software. Just tell me why. Like they don't mean it in a, like in an undermining way, but to somebody who's thin skin, they're like, why not, like you just, I just am telling you what to do. Like, why are you always questioning me? So that can also be a problem for questioners sometimes. Oh, questioner absolutely. children I mean, often have that problem with adults. Is they're yes. like, they're seen as being, impertinent when in fact they're like why should i learn the multiplication tables they mean that quite sincerely I, I can look it up on my phone why should i memorize it it's like you should give them an answer to that they don't mean to be cheeky they literally just want to know tell them the answer and then they'll do it yeah and unfortunately for my wife she not only has a husband who's a questioner but she has a son who's also a questioner and a daughter who's a rebel oh um, so so we, we we have a lot of uh, friendly conflict in the house but what i found is that it's easier to be able to speak to each of them in different ways, because I understand that for my son, he's a questioner like me. So I just need to give him logic and justifications. Here's like, for example, just this morning, I had a conflict where the two of them were in the house and my wife was out uh, doing something work related. And I wanted them to clean the living room and clean the kitchen. So for my son, it was, well, here are all the reasons why it's important that we clean this up and here, you know, the expectations that I have and all this. But then with my daughter, it was, all right, so here's the deal. We need to clean. So your option is you can either clean and you can help clean up or you cannot help clean, but then dot, 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 right? So I was giving her information. I was giving her a choice, but then she had a consequence to each. And oddly enough, they both immediately stood up and they just started cleaning the house for me, yeah. right? And yeah, I yeah. want people to be able to apply that logic to working in a collaborative environment with others. So now that we've gone through, here's how I can kind of identify myself. You can go through a quiz, but you can't just work with somebody else that you maybe don't feel very comfortable with and say, hey, let me sit you down for five minutes yeah. and send you a link to this yeah. quiz. So yeah. if I'm working with people and I want to be able to identify their tendency so I can help meet their expectations and vice versa, how do we start to really dig into the matrix now? So there are some tip-offs. So with questioners, you are looking for people who are objecting to things as being arbitrary, people who ask a lot of questions, people are very interested in data, people are interested in efficiency. Um, that's when you're going to see the questioner where you do feel like it's all about, I need to explain why, and that's how you're going to get on board. Whenever people are complaining about self-care, whenever they are complaining about boundaries, that is a tip off that you're dealing with an obliger. Also, who is the person in this team that everybody goes to when they need a favor, they need somebody to go the extra mile? That person's probably the obliger. Obligers feel like they're being taken advantage of. 
and they are. Everybody exploits obligers and it's on all of us to learn to be more fair and not to take advantage of obligers because they can have obliger rebellion, which is when they you know, explode because obligers are the ones who are the most likely to help out. So if you've got, most people are on two committees and one person's on five committees, okay, that person's probably the obliger. If one person's always taking the night shift because other people don't want to take the night shift, that person's probably the obliger. So in a way, they're like great. They're the rock of the world. They match up the most easily with the other three tendencies that are like the typo. And they are often the ones who are the, the ones that we go to because they are the ones who help out. And that's why they're so invaluable to have as leaders and team, team members. Rebels, you know a rebel pretty quick because rebels, they're like, they're going to do what they want to do. You know, they're not going to do it because you told them to. And they will often do things like not go to mandatory staff meetings, you know, or like they will, if they're your boss, they might suddenly change the priorities. They might uh, th- throw uh, throw out the count, like, oh, we had these three meetings set for Wednesday afternoon, but now I've decided I want to do something else Wednesday afternoon, so cancel my meetings. They often will do things like, uh, like as you said, they want to be self-starters. They want to be working for themselves because they don't like to work for other people. Often they will go into like sales because it's like, whatever you need to do to make a sale, you can do. You know, there's a lot of like, you can do your own work in your own way as long as you perform. Um, but interestingly, some rebels are very attracted to working for in areas of high regulation, like the police, the clergy, the military, high regulation companies, because they kind of need something to push against. They feel like if they don't have structure they might kind of um, spin out or be paralyzed and so they need structure. So a rebel, if, if you're collaborating with a rebel, you might see somebody who, who doesn't really take direction very well, but might be very helpful in that they think outside the box, they come up with unconventional solutions and they're sort of like doing their own thing. And then an upholder, you're gonna, you're gonna know that it's an upholder because it's somebody, upholders are very, very good at execution. They're very good at things like to-do lists and schedules. They can seem rigid. Um, so if you have somebody that you're working with where you feel like, you know, this person, we need a lot of flexibility in our workplace. Okay. An upholder often is not good at flexibility. They're not good at ambiguity, like where it's not clear. What does success look like here? It's not clear. Okay. That could be really distressing to an upholder because they're like, I want to know what's expected of me. Um, cause I don't really understand. Or like when it's not clear what the rules are, like uh, upholders don't do well where you're supposed to kind of like play fast. In some some work areas, you're supposed to kind of play fast and loose with the rules. That's kind of the expectation is that you're not going to totally follow the rules. Upholders tend to not do very well in that because they're very much like, like I remember I was at a wedding. They gave us a card and said like, go to the bus at 5.45 PM to go to the, go to the service. And I ran into the bride's mother and the bride's mother said, oh, they're actually going to leave at six. And I was like, but the card says 5.45. And she's like, yeah, but we don't need that much time. So we're just going to leave at six. And I was like, but there's a card. And the <laughs> card says 5.45. So I feel like you can't just like walk around and change that now. I mean, like, come on. We've all committed to 5.45. It was like, to me, it was like a, a rule of nature. So you can see in your collaboration that the strengths and the weaknesses are very complementary. You know, somebody's really going to keep everybody on track maybe not be so flexible. And somebody might be really, really focused on efficiency, but maybe that's going to slow everybody down. And somebody's going to be great to like pitch in when they need help, but then they're going to burn out and have some resentment, some anger, and that's going to be a problem. And then there's some people who are just going to do what they want to do. And that's, that can be great. It can also be a huge pain if somebody won't do what you ask or tell them to do. <laughs> but they all, they work together. We need all of these on our teams because they all are very complimentary. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's 
that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Yeah, and what I find, and I don't want to speak in absolutes, but I do feel fairly confident in speaking close to an absolute, is that in the specific collaborative environment of Hollywood, what I have found now that I'm able to really read these tendencies, and generally, it takes less than five minutes once you start to really play the game of, oh, what's this person's tendency? It doesn't take long. It's not like you need to do deep research and three weeks later, it dawns on you. It happens no. really, really fast. It's very blatant. Yeah, it's And very what I have found is that almost every single editor that I know is either an obliged your first or a question or second. And then I think that's one of the reasons that burnout is such a huge part of my program because so many people come to me saying, I'm so burned out and working such long hours. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if you know that working such long hours is poor for your health and you have all this information, why aren't you just working less hours and telling your bosses? And like, why is that so hard? But then I realized, oh, it's because they feel obligated to because the culture makes them feel obligated to put in those hours because everybody else does. And I want to do what I'm told and meet that outer expectation. So I feel that almost all editors are either a uh, obliger or a questioner. Almost every single director across the board, probably no surprise here, rebel. All of them show up late, don't want to take notes, don't want to listen to suggestions. They're still great collaborators, great storytellers, and great at what they do, but they just walk in the door and they have rebel all over them. And then when it comes to most producers, I find that most of them are obligers, which is interesting. Some of them rebels, but for the most part, the writers and producers are obligers, which I found really, really interesting because I thought I would see a lot more questioners. And maybe it's because I just haven't worked with enough people, but I work on various TV shows and you know, work with 10, 20, 30 writers over the course of the last couple of years. And I found that that really is uh, very much kind of, again, it's not absolutes, but it seems pretty consistent. Um, through all the stuff that you've done talking to your sister, do you find that that's fairly accurate? Well, you know, I don't know because I haven't uh, like been enough in that, like seen enough people in that role other than her. She's an obliger. And, you know, obliger is the largest tendency for both men and women. So whatever, wherever you are, there's probably going to, like anybody's like, they're most likely to be an obliger because there's just, it's a big group of people. And so you're always probably likely to see obligers popping up. If for obligers who have burnout, what they might be edging up into is obliger rebellion, which is when obligers meet, 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 meet and expectations. And then suddenly they snap and they're like, this I won't do. And sometimes it's small and kind of funny. Like I've heard from many obligers who will sit in their cars in order to be deliberately late for work as a form of obliger rebellion, which is like a small thing, but they're doing it on purpose because they're like, you're trying to make me do things, but you can't make me. It's this, they're tapping into the rebel. But then sometimes it's huge and explosive. like you're dead to me. This is over. This is finished. I'm divorcing you. I'm ending a 30 year friendship. I'm quitting this job and going to work for a competitor today and you can't fix it and you can't make it better. It's like, it's like a volcano exploding. And it happens when obligers feel taken advantage of, exploited, ignored, neglected. And so it's really important because obligers really can be so valuable and because it's the right thing to do. I think all of the rest of us need to be on the lookout for examples when we're taking advantage of obligers because we don't want them to fall into obliger rebellion with that deep resentment and burnout that they very often feel from the weight of outer expectations. And it's interesting what you say about rebels because here's the thing that you'll see with rebels. If rebels have a, a partner, if they have a romantic partner, if they're a founding team, if they have like a number two that they've worked with over and over and over again, almost always that person is an obliger. Almost always. And there's kind of a set of special circumstances that can kind of account for when they're not. But that is that is the most common pattern that you see of the tendencies pairing up. If one person is a rebel, they're probably with an obliger. 
And so I wonder if you see that with the directors, like that the people around them, they've surrounded themselves with the blighters. Well, and I think that that's why I see the combination of so many producer director teams where the uh-huh. producer is obviously the obliger and the director is the go. rebel because they work so well together. Well, see, um, I didn't even think of that. That's exactly right. Well, then that's predicts that that exactly accounts for what you observed. Yeah, and again, it's not absolute, but it's pretty consistent. And uh, the the majority of people that I work with in my program are on the editing side because they relate to me in my journey. But I have had some directors. I think every director that I've worked with, I would classify as a rebel. And essentially, every editor that I've worked with is either obliger or questioner. There's one that maybe is an upholder. But I think that the rigidness, like, because a lot of times, like, you have this idea of the engineer, like, no, this isn't the way that you do it. You must do it this way, right? Like the tech guy. But that's not the upholder. That's because they've justified why their way is best. And that's why there's so much customization and talk about workflows. And I don't think it's any surprise that I've become, you know, a, a workflow expert on customizing things and making them digital and more efficient and more effective. Like, that's the foundation of what I do. And when I read, oh, questioners love to find efficiencies, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what's going to be written on my tombstone. Was this the most efficient way to do this, right? And and why, right? That would would be the other keyword. Right, right. And the thing is, you know, sometimes people like really focus it on one thing, like, oh, I'm rigid, therefore I'm in a polder. I'm like, well, other people can be rigid too. You really have to look at like kind of the whole, like the kind of the spirit of the upholder, which I think is why the quiz is good because it asks you a lot of different questions. Because sometimes like I remember saying to somebody, Oh, uh, a lot of times um, some questioners really have trouble with traffic regulations. They they really object to traffic regulations. And somebody said, well, I'm not a questioner. I don't object to traffic regulations. I'm like, well, for some idiosyncratic reason, maybe you don't care about traffic regulations, but you could still be a questioner. It's not like, it's not like there's things where it's just like, you know, one little thing makes you like takes you out. Um, but I think the kind of the way you describe yourself, these are all the kinds of things that would really appeal to a questioner that would really like be like feel really good and really satisfying and really like, ah, oh, this is what I want to dig into. And of course, with your career, that's what you want. You want something where it's like it feels right. Like it feels like, ooh, this is like I like working this way. And if it's if it's out of step, like for example, you know, some people love being in a place where like we're a team, we're team players. Like it's all about the team here. We've got a great corporate head, great vision. And we're here to like bring that vision to life as a team. You, you know, you, as a questioner, you might be like, I don't know if that's going nope. to, that's going to, yeah. No, thank yeah, you. Yeah, Does that yeah, work for me? Yeah, I have not, nothing yeah, against right. the team, but I'm not right. a good team member. I already know and that. It, and again, it's not that it's a bad workplace. It's that it's not a good fit for you. And so, right. and, and like you said earlier, you want to go in there knowing like, certain kind of things I'm going to be admired for and praised for and valued for. In another workplace, everybody could be rolling their eyes at me and thinking that I'm a problem. And I want to get, to, and so, you know, like I know an obliger who said, who always says, look, I want a tough boss. I want somebody who sets high standards and holds me to those standards. And I like deadlines and supervision. I like that kind of structure. And it's like, other people would not want that kind of structure. She thrives in that kind of structure. So there's a workplace where things are set up that way. Like get yourself there because then you are, that's just going to feel right and you're going to do your best work. So it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's just that it's a fit. And it sounds like for you, you have really understood how to fit yourself to the work in a way that you feel like you are really able to excel and to, and to dive into your strengths. And that is a good feeling. That's when we feel good. That's when we feel like we're we're like we're in our stride. If there's a mismatch, it can be it can it it just can be grit. You know, maybe it's not a big deal, but it, you know, maybe maybe and maybe it does become a big deal. Maybe it does become a bad fit. Well, the the idea is that I want to make sure that I'm setting myself up for success and not failure. And that is, of course, the bigger picture. What's my career choice? But it's also who are my collaborators? What kinds of shows am I working on? What do the projects look like? More importantly, this is the aspect that so many people miss. What does the lifestyle of this project and working with these people look like? And what's the process? Because yeah. everybody's saying, "Oh, I would love to win an Oscar." I'd love to win an Emmy, but are you willing to go through that process? And does it align with your goals? Because ultimately, I don't want people to just be successful. I want them to have a fulfilling career and meet their own definition of success. It's not just about, well, I have all these accolades. It's, yeah, but did you enjoy the process and you get excited about going to work and know that it's the right fit? And you have to know the right questions in order to make that happen. And for me, 
understanding these four tendencies has made it so much easier for me to find the right collaborators and the right projects, which leads me to the million dollar question. I don't like my tendency. How do I change it? You know, it's, it's funny when people don't like their tendency because every, each of these tendencies has strengths and weaknesses. Each has, um, you know, each includes people who have been wildly successful and also big, big losers. Um, and I think that each of the tendencies, it's not that one is better or worse or one is happier or healthier, or more productive or more creative, but it's that when you know your tendency, you can figure out how to make the most of it and how to offset the weaknesses. So when you look at the people who are the most successful, or the happiest or the most creative or whatever. I don't think it's that they are of a particular tendency. I think that it's they figured out how to create the environment that allows them to, to get the life they want and to have the career they want. So if you're an obliger, for instance, because a lot of times obligers say they don't want to be obligers. All you need is outer accountability. And outer accountability is not hard. It's very easy to find ways to plug in outer accountability. I have this app, the Better app. It's a free app people can join. And it's all about the four tendencies and habits and happiness and stuff. And there are a lot of obligers kind of trade ideas and kind of ingenious solutions for how do you create outer accountability for things where maybe you need a little bit of imagination to figure out how you would plug that in. But it's like, it's fine. Once you have outer accountability, you can do anything you want. So what's the big deal? And then questioners, it's like, okay, well, like you see where your pitfalls are. You have analysis paralysis. Okay. What are some solutions for analysis paralysis? One is limits. I'm going to visit five tent, tent stores, but not 10 tent stores. One is trusted authority. I trust these people. If this software is good enough for them, I'm going to trust their judgment. I don't have to do my own research because I know these people do their own research. I can trust them. Um, it's deadlines. We're going to make a decision by Friday. After that, it's not efficient. Like at a certain point, you just have to make a decision and do your best and learn from and, and learn. And maybe we make a, mis- a decision and we and we pivot later. But if we just keep delaying, that's not efficient. So you know, like any exercise is better than no exercise. So by Friday, I'm going to pick a I'm going to pick a regimen and I'm going to stick to it, and then I'll learn from the experiment. Okay, that's like okay. You got if you if you're bugged by the fact that you have analysis paralysis now, you've got tools and tips to fix it. So I don't think it's, you know, is it possible to change our our own nature? I kind of don't think it is possible. Or if it is possible, it's very, very, very difficult. And to me, it's like, don't train yourself. There's nothing wrong with you. Any frustration you're feeling, many, many other people have felt the same frustration and they've come up with solutions that you can learn from. So don't worry about fixing yourself or changing yourself. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just like figure out another way to achieve your aim. There's a lot of ways to achieve our aims. If something's not working for you, it doesn't matter if it worked for me or it worked for your sister-in-law or works for your boss. If it's not working for you, okay, try something else because there's a lot of ways to achieve our aims. Well, as a questioner, I'm already thinking about all the justifications for making this interview run a whole lot longer than it should because <laughs> I really want to keep going. But I also realize I'm talking to an upholder and yes. we have we have reached our time. And I know that upholder tendency will win out over the, the questioner analysis and justification. So I wanted to make sure and thank you so much for your time being here today. But before we go, it's very important that the questioners, the obligers, the rebels, and the holders all know how to get more information about you. And there's so much material. Where's the easiest place for me to send my audience? So at GretchenRubin.com is my website and you can learn all about my books and you can read sample chapters and listen to audio clips and get all kinds of one pagers and nutshells. And, and, and there's tons of posts there about all different. I just wrote a post recently about anger and the four tendencies, like how your four tendencies... It comes out in different kinds of anger. So there's all kinds of stuff there. Game of Thrones, if you want to read my analysis of the Game of Thrones character, there's a whole post there. So that's a great thing. I have a podcast, uh, which I do every week with my sister, Elizabeth, who's a showrunner and TV writer in Los Angeles. And that's called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And that's wherever you listen to your podcast. And I'm on social media. Uh, my tag is Gretchen Rubin, and I love to connect with people. If you're interested in the four tendencies, I do have a four tendencies online course for people who like to learn from an online course more than um, reading a book because I've got a whole book called The Four Tendencies. And there's also a workshop. If you want to teach a workshop, like in your workplace or you're a healthcare professional and want to tell people about it, um, there's a workshop. There's a lot there on The Four Tendencies. Yeah, so, but basically GretchenRubin.com. I have a monthly newsletter um, you can sign up for if you want to. I got a bunch of stuff. More stuff than anybody would ever want, but go to GretchenRubin.com and that will be your, that's a good springboard to everything else. Awesome. Well, all the upholders, um, I'm counting on you uh, to go to GretchenRubin.com. It's the best thing for you for all of the questioners. I promise there's a whole bunch of answers why. And yeah. it's going to make you learn so much more. For the obligers, you know, we're, we, we really uh, would like you to do that. And we would like to hear back from you. And we'd yes. like to know you showed up. And for the rebels, 
go, don't go. You might get information. <laughs> you might walk away and not have any information. If you don't go, whatever you want, right? Yes. Um, so that, that gives a, a very brief inclination to how you can crawl into the mind of anybody, you read the matrix and get them to do what you want to do, right? That's not what it's about. That's um, but right. It, so anyway, thank you so, so much for being on the show. This is, I know you don't realize it because you basically responded to my first email, which blew me away. But in my mind, it has been like a year and a half long process to make this happen. Oh, that's um, a- so, and, and well, it's funny because I've just built this up so much in my mind. Like, oh my God, she's, she's not actually going to respond to my email. She's got this huge podcast and she's got all these best-selling books. Like, who am I? Like, just, I was taken over by imposter syndrome, which I never am. Because I reach out to all these other big authors, there's just something about this that I just kept building up and kept building it up. And I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to email her and see what happens. And like a day later, would love to. I'm like, really? That's all I had to do? But anyway, it's, it says a lot about your character and I really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much for being on the oh, show. Well, I so enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.